locking people up and throwing away the key is not helping. Welcome, welcome everyone. It's time for another episode of our Ramos Law Difference Makers podcast. And it's an honor for me to be here with our guest, Andrew Ho today. He is an attorney that really watches out for the rights of people who some may think don't have rights. So I'm your host, Dr. Jim Hoven, and I hope that little teaser gets you excited to listen to this because there are so many things about our legal system that we just don't understand. And thankfully, you know, with my uh, time in the law firm, I've gotten to get a whole new perspective than when I was treating patients. And so it's been a real eye-opening process for me. So having a guest like Andrew here who has such experience and is with such a great firm, helping people get representation who others might not represent. We'll, we'll dig into why that is, how it is, and, and get a better understanding. So hang on. You're going to want to listen to this. It, it, it may make you think. It may make you questions. We'll give you a chance for all of that to uh, respond at some point with emails and stuff. But in the meantime, let's go get it. Let's have fun. So Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Let's Absolutely. Do let's yeah. do this. I like that <laughs> attitude. And thank you for driving and braving the rainstorm. Oh, We're yeah. having torrential rains right now. And so having you here with us is good. And you're in an, an amazing firm downtown and with what you guys are doing it's really impressive because i know you know uh, rec cornfield has a great reputation and i want to see from you um first of all as we go through that what is it about this type of law first describe what your what you call your law practice what what kind of law you do so that people understand it and then why this type of law. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great question. Uh, Rec Hornfeld, lucky to be there. A lot of great people. Uh, we have a couple different areas of practice. A lot of us do criminal defense law there. There's also government work and some civil practice as well. Mm-hmm. Licensure defense. So we were talking about that a little earlier. Yes. Professional licensure defenses. Yes. Doctors, teachers, um, individuals that get in trouble and their professional license online, they also call, call us as well. And mm-hmm. so Sorry, you're asking. Yeah, how, how did you decide that that was the area of law? Because there's so many areas. People don't even understand the number of specialty yeah. law areas. Why that? Yeah, that's, a, well, that's interesting. Um, it's funny because, I mean, I know you have a JD um, as well. Well, uh, I don't, but Dr. Ramos does. So I'm, I'm a DC I Cairo. I keep getting guys confused. I you apologize. You know, everyone gets us confused. <laughs> Not really, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah. So I'm a, I'm a chiropractor along with then the COO of the law firm. Okay, very good. Um, so look, a lot of people go to law school, like you said, to get the skills uh, of a lawyer because they really kind of teach you something different than uh, what college teaches you, et cetera. Yes. Um, mainly different ways to think. Right. Um, but I actually went to law school in mind to uh, be a criminal defense attorney. Specifically, uh, when I went to law school, I was thinking I wanted to be a public defender. When I was an undergraduate um, at University of Wisconsin, I interned with the Wisconsin Public Defender's Office, and it blew me away. That experience was top notch, and I just knew that was really what I wanted to do. What was it about that, Andrew? What, was, yeah. what brought you that sense of this is my direction? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, So I come from a family, uh, my whole family background is medical doctors, right? My my dad's uh, MD, PhD, my brother's MD, PhD. I was the first in our family to really kind of want to be a lawyer. How did they feel about that? Uh, You know, as long as it's not med mal, (laughs) right? It's sort of their thought. (laughs) Yes, makes Uh, sense. But, you know... I didn't know exactly what area of law I wanted to be in. I thought it would be awesome to be in the courtroom. Litigator, uh-huh. right? Uh, but as you know, there's so many different areas of litigation. And it really was, um, I decided I wanted to take an internship at um, a government agency. What type of government agency was a little bit up in the air. I knew I didn't want to be a prosecutor. Uh, but I figured government agency is really where the nitty gritty is, right? Where uh, the rubber meets the road, should we say. Um, and I was drawn to the public defender's office in Wisconsin and applied to them. Fortunately, got the internship. It was an unpaid internship at that time because as an undergrad, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I don't know, right? There's no, nothing about law that I learned that yes. I can help them with. Yes. And just meeting the, the public defenders there, watching them work cases, watching them interact with um, their clients. I distinctly remember there's one attorney there, uh, probably mid forties. Mm-hmm. She had a trial that she uh, was eager to have me just watch. I, there's nothing I could do to help her with this trial. Yeah. Um, and 
she was just very kind, and, and that really that really struck a chord with me. Right? Is um, this is a in Wisconsin, the state can take away your child um, if uh, in, in this scenario the mother had her child with an underage uh, male, mm-hmm. right? And so uh, he, she was entitled to a jury trial in that. In the, and for some reason. I don't know how it works, but in Wisconsin, the public defender's office handled that type of case. We don't, we didn't do that type of case here in Colorado. Um, but she prepared the trial. She spent all weekend prepping it, and she just let me tag along and watch trial, right? And I remember during voir dire, which is the initial process where the attorneys talk to the jurors and try to figure out who's um, the best juror to be in the case, who gets kicked, who gets selected. Um, she would turn to me and ask me for advice. And I was like, I don't know if you should be doing that, but sure, here's, here are my two cents, right? Through the whole trial, she ended up losing that case. Um, and so the, her client, the mother, ended up losing custody of her child, which is just devastating news, I'm yes. sure, to anyone, yes. right? Um, but I distinctly remember the drive home after that verdict. Uh, we all carpooled with her. Uh, the client couldn't afford her own car, so the public defender was driving her home first, and I was riding in the back seat. Um, and keep in mind, this public defender had probably, I don't know, like 15 years of experience by this point in time. Right, right? so she was good. Yeah, she was good. Um, I thought she put on a great case, very passionate about her client. Um, her client, the whole way on the way home, just singing her praises. You did a great job, you know. Oh, don't worry about it. Um, I'm just glad that someone was there in my corner, that type of stuff, right? Um, The second she dropped the mom off, um, she pulled over and just started bawling. She did. Yeah, and that really stuck out to me. So connected to the result and the client. Right. I mean, can you imagine being in a profession for 15, 20 years and caring so deeply about your client still to that day? Because, I mean, she probably had hundreds of trials under her belt. Yeah. Right. And that one loss still, it still really struck her. Mm. And so I always wanted, my, my family had always preached um, community and helping others. Right. Um, I've been very blessed to have a lot of resources that other people haven't had. And it's always been instilled in me that um, you use that to help others. Right. And so um, my way of thinking was, well, that's what I want to do. I don't want to be 40 or 50 and wait until five o'clock and go home. And for the, you know, that's perfectly fine if that's what you want, right? But I wanted more of, am I making a difference to one person? It doesn't need to be millions. It doesn't need to be thousands. But if one person says, you know, Andrew Ho really helped out or something, then, then I can go home and be happy. Yes. Right? And what about these, so now let's start moving into what you do. Yeah. When you do criminal defense, the, the case that you just described, I could see how people would be going, you know, yeah, a, a, the mom's connection to the child, and was there an indiscretion with an age limit? Absolutely, but if these were quote-unquote consensual, then you got that side, plus what does it mean for this child and all that? That's one thing where I could see where you could really get attached. How about the other side where someone did it and that yeah. what they did was horrible murder uh, taking away something like just rape or abuse or sure. something what is how do you guys do what you do so that you they're guilty you know they're guilty your job is to make their case as well as you can so that they pay the minimum price for what they did if i'm stating it yeah. right but, but tell me about that side of it because sure. that's what people i think have a hard time grasping sure well, there's a, double, a couple different principles involved in that, right? And the first one I'd say is uh, the reason why I chose this profession is because on the other side of me, uh, right across from the table, is a, is a client, right? Is a human being, yes. is someone that has a backstory. Um, you know, they say, don't judge someone until you walk them out in their shoes, right? And, and that's absolutely true in this, this type of scenario. Very rarely, and in fact, I would say, probably only once or twice in my career have I been unable to figure out um, what makes this person tick, right? In in terms of, um, put it this way, 
no one really wakes up in the morning thinking, I want to be bad today. Mm. I want to do mm-hmm. bad things, mm-hmm. right? More than likely, there's if you sit and connect with a client in that type of scenario that's been accused of um, something that society doesn't approve of or, quite bluntly, um, something horrendous, yeah. right? Um, in that scenario, likely it's, a, it's coming from a source of trauma. Something horrible probably happened to that person. Oftentimes what we'll see is that they were victims themselves of something, and we as society or our resources failed them because they never received the counseling, they, the case was never prosecuted, what have you, right? And so in those types of scenarios, it's my job uh, to figure out this person's story, to present their story, right, to, to give them a voice. And mm-hmm. if you think about uh, what I had said originally with that first public defender, right, that sort of inspired me to go to law school and be a public defender originally. Um, the mom, she was just grateful to have someone on her side and tell her story. Someone that just didn't judge her for her indiscretion, right? And someone that saw her as a mother that still believed she could be a capable and loving mother, right? Um, and so our system is comprised of having a jury make the, a community what is acceptable to that community, right? But it's also comprised with you get a voice. You get to have your story told. And so it's not my job to judge anyone, nor does it matter, in my opinion. So that's principle one, is you're dealing with a human being. And if you can't see past the allegations, if you can't see past, well, they said this, and therefore you're a bad person, and that's sort of your mindset, maybe you're not really cut out for the profession. Right. Definitely. Um, But the second principle is I've always firmly believed in the um, the the foundation of our constitutional principles. Right. Um, The very basics. It's it's a very strong, uh, strong document. The rights that we have are things that other people in other countries may not get and we take advantage of. Right. Mm -hmm. And we just uh, we take it for granted are the words I'm looking for. Um, The right to be presumed innocent, the right to remain silent. Well, some countries, if they accuse you of a crime, you get tortured. You get beaten until you, quote unquote, confess. Yes. Right. And we're very protective of those rights. And that's that's a huge, huge difference. And you never really realize how important those rights are until you hear about these third world countries or these dictatorship type countries that don't have those constitutional mm. principles. And so my philosophy in that sense is um, you really can judge society based off of how they treat uh, the, the least desirable in their society, right? Mm. So in a sense of if we're willing to bend the rules because this person is accused of something that we deem horrendous, well, how, how, how much longer until we start moving that line, right? How much longer until it suddenly becomes a police state and we're willing to cut breaks to the police and we're willing to water down these constitutional principles. But if we have a society where we firmly believe that if the government is accusing you of something and they want to take away your liberty, they better earn it and they better do it honestly, then I'm all for that. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Uh, what you just said was something I'd never heard before, and it, it rings true to me as how you, you can tell a lot by a society on how they treat their, we'll call it basest individuals or something, or most base individuals. I'm interested then on, on the follow-up to that, assuming that the system finds that person to be guilty. I want to go in another direction in a minute, but assuming they're guilty yeah. and assuming they truly are guilty, so the system worked, what do you think as a society we should do in, in our treatment of them? Is there, is there something in your mind like, hey, our jails are treating people right, wrong, uh, sentencing? Like, do you have a personal philosophy on that? Because it's such an interesting point that yeah. you raised that I've never thought of before. Yeah, I do. And this is probably going to get you a lot of letters and emails. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I mean, it, it's interesting because we're this, this current time period that we're in, 
people are actually starting to pay more attention to the studies and uh, the research surrounding this in terms of do we just lock people up and throw away the key? Why is it that the U.S. is the really the only first world civilized country that is beating everyone else by far in terms of incarceration rate, right? And again, this goes all towards uh, political views and, and that type, And I'm not looking to get into too much controversy. For there. sure. For but sure. I don't think it's much of a debate that, look, locking people up and throwing away the key is not helping, right? If you are making jokes about how bad the prison system is, about, hey, if you go to prison, this is going to happen to you, and that's funny to you, right? And you are viewing human beings across from you and saying, this is what's going to happen to you, and you're okay with that. What does that say about you as a person, hmm. in my opinion? Hmm. Now, there's a lot of studies out there, right, that talks about, well, what is effective uh, in terms of rehabilitation and preventing uh, further harm and... Yes. Because, look, we can talk about mental health treatment. We can talk about um, uh, addiction counseling, uh, addiction resources, right? Or we can talk about just punitive aspects. Mm -hmm. right? are, are, do you find that, I'm sorry to interrupt, but this oh, yeah. is so fascinating. Do you find that for most people that are rightfully incarcerated, whether the time limit is right or not, but the, the punishment is for the crime, that <clears throat> the vast majority of them have either A, a mental health and or B, a substance connection to their actions is that a majority a minority or is there stats that are pretty cut and dry on that yeah i think it's uh from my experience so i started off as a public defender now i'm with rec hornfeld right and so uh if you understand sort of how the system works with the public defenders we represent indigent individuals those yes. are the individuals that can't afford a lawyer right and that's again really where the rubber meets the road that's really where if there are my uh, communities that are being discriminated against, communities that are being viewed poorly uh, or looked down upon, um, that's where, in my opinion, um, we test the constitutional principles, right, and how it's being applied to each individual in society. Um, there is rampant uh, addiction issues. There's rampant mental health issues, right? I don't if you walk down the streets, uh, unfortunately, these days, you can see a lot of um, individuals that have mental health issues and that type of thing. It could be a community thing. It could be a cultural thing where uh, mental health is still a stigma in many communities, right? Um, and so they don't seek the proper counseling or the proper med medication that they need. It can be a cost issue as well, right? Um, but for a long period of time, and I think in some communities, some counties, it's still viewed as jail is essentially where we put the mentally ill, right? Because we don't know how to treat them. They're doing bad things, so let's just lock them up for a period of time. Um, I think there are more progressive communities now that are saying, okay, um, that's not what we do to members of society. And quite frankly, it saves taxpayers money if we can get these individuals treatment if we can get them the help they need, then they're not going to be coming back. They're mm -hmm. not going to, we're not going to be required to house them and feed them um, in a jail system, right? And so, yeah. in my opinion, if you're asking my personal opinion, yes, I yes. think that's a more progressive society. I think that is one where we're saying there's something wrong with you, um, or not necessarily wrong with you, but there's something's wrong. Right. There's resources we can give you to lead a more fulfilling life or become more productive productive member of the society right and so we have option a throw you in jail or option b give you help right i don't know why we would just simply choose option a mm. and do we have models that we could learn from in other countries or within certain jurisdictions where they don't treat it that way where we could go to that and go look at you know for all of you that want a pound of flesh a pound of flesh is great but the pounds of flesh add up over time. And if and when these people get out from serving their pound of flesh, they're blank percent likely to go back to a life of crime versus this group who, you know, they weren't, maybe they gave an ounce of flesh, but then they had a rehab program. I don't know the cost, you know, I don't know the cost difference yeah. of one versus the other, 
but do we have models that we could follow? We do. So there's a lot of studies being done on this and they compare them to, uh, they use other first world civilizations, right? Uh, first world countries, excuse me, uh, as models. And I don't know specifically offhand uh, which countries, but Denmark and Norway are usually leading the way on those in terms of uh, the addiction rehabilitation, I know for mm. a fact, right? And um, there are, in fact, in most sentencings that we go through here in Colorado, uh, when they get what we call a pre-sentence report, it's a report given to the judge prior sentencing, they'll break down the cost. It costs this much for you to send this individual to prison. Yes. It'll cost this much to send this individual to community corrections or halfway house, right? It costs this much to give them resources on probation, right? And so that yeah. that's something that they've been starting to do more and more to give an idea of, okay, what's, so the, the judge now has in front of them, what's going to be effective to balance between the punitive aspect, hey, you did something wrong and you deserve punishment, uh, versus the rehabilitative aspect. How can we make this right? And how can we make sure that you don't come back again? Yes, I right. love that thinking. And, and would you say that that is becoming more pervasive, especially now? The, the interesting thing from a, a, what would we call it, a political social climate is now there's, I, I don't know if you would still consider there are a lot of unrest. Maybe it's a little deeper under the surface, but you know, through COVID and then you know, the George Floyd incident and all of these things, let's defund the police. Let's allow this. Now Walgreens are getting shut down because everyone's yeah. getting robbed. And they say, well, if you're not stealing a thousand bucks worth, then we're not going to do anything. Okay, well, we'll take 900 bucks worth. Like <laughs> all of this stuff has ramifications that make people say, I'm not doing that. Why do you get to do that? Yeah. Right. Sure. But at the end of the day, if we could come to a thing of saying, listen, what you're doing is, is wrong based on our laws, our culture, like somewhere else it may be right, but not here. And so since you live here and you choose to live here, you're gonna to have to pay the price, but we wanna see if you can learn. We wanna yeah. see if you're able to do this. If you're a habitual criminal, then guess what? I guess you're choosing this life. Right. And you right. get to choose this too. Right. But otherwise our goal for you is this. Is that becoming more widespread or with the public court of public opinion, does it matter? Sure. Well, it's interesting because when you say defund the police, right, uh, I think there's a couple different philosophies with that. When I hear defund the police, it's not let's get rid of all the police officers mm -hmm. and this is more of a vigilante justice system, right? Instead, what I hear are, and, and I hear from law enforcement as well, we're not mental health counselors. Yes, right? exactly. We're not equipped to handle X, Y, and Z type calls. We're here to protect uh, the community from individuals who are breaking the law. Mm -hmm. So why are they getting called out to mental health crisis? Right. Right. And so when I hear defund the police, it's uh, not let's take away their budget. Right. But it's let's send them on certain calls and maybe they have a mental health counselor with them. Maybe they have someone trained in mental health uh, either with them when they respond to certain calls or instead of sending the police out to a mental health crisis, we send out those mental health counselors to that. Mm, yeah, I, you know, I have a son who's in law enforcement, sheriff's department, <clears throat> and we have this conversation and we have this same kind of situation. He's like, look, you know, I don't wanna be called to these kind of places. Right now I have to be. On the other side, if it's a domestic violence thing and I'm not there and you mm -hmm. send a counselor, that right. person's not trained. If things go south, they will not handle the situation or themselves. And now right. we could get everybody hurt. So it is a, a fine line. And I don't know that there's a right or perfect answer because there is a limited financial resource, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's fascinating to me, but I'm really interested from your perspective too on, I've seen, and I don't know if it, there's more frequency now, Andrew, or not, but I've seen or seen a, a higher level of people that were not guilty yeah. and being imprisoned for years or decades yeah. and coming out. And some of them, I'm surprised with the joyous attitude that they come out with. I, I don't know that I could do it, especially sure. knowing that you were right the whole time. But what are the, are, are there any more safeguards now in where, wherever we are in 2023 to prevent that from happening than there was five, 10, 20 years sure. ago? Sure. Well, I mean, I think the important part is to keep in mind, like, why are we seeing people walking out of jail after being exonerated, right? It's while we have a system uh, that has great constitutional principles, 
it's run by human beings, right? And if you're going to sit and cross from me and say that you've never made a mistake, that you don't have, uh, or that uh, the vast majority of people don't have implicit biases, that type of thing, uh, shortcomings as human beings, right? That, that's just not a fact most people are willing to accept. Yes. Right? So if you have a system run by human beings, there's going to be errors. Uh, the question then is, what errors are we are we willing as a society to accept if we're talking about incarcerating innocent individuals, mm -hmm. right? And so when you're asking me, are there safeguards, things along those lines, um, I think you're starting to see a trend in some areas, um, in some states, where they're recognizing, look, uh, we're a system of human beings, right? Uh, I'll give you an example. Colorado, two years ago, abolished a death penalty, right? Um, why? Well, there's a lot of different philosophies with that. Uh, do we think that crime has gone away? Do we think, no. But do we want to fund government to kill people for, as a way of saying, don't kill people or we'll kill you, right? If we're seeing people being exonerated for being wrongfully accused, do we want a system where it's so final that we can't go back and say, oops, sorry about that, we'll let you out now? Wow, that's a really profound thought, right? And so in terms of safeguards, things like that, I think the system's trying, right? I think they, uh, the system is recognizing that people do have implicit bias and that we want to try to do better, but the reality is you're never gonna have a perfect system. Yeah, you can't. Right. You know, I would just, I just in the last two weeks finished a book called Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. I've heard of it. Fantastic read. And I, I told my son as we were together last week, I said, listen, I was so thinking about you and what Malcolm Gladwell does it for those of you that are watching or listening that have never uh, picked up a Malcolm Gladwell book. He takes several stories, like 20, and theme goes on to theme, goes on to theme, and then he wraps them all together to prove one or two central core concepts that he weaves throughout this process. And one of the chapters in there was, or two of the chapters were on law enforcement and the interesting biases and what the research shows, according to what he was saying, <clears throat> was that people, even the most expertly trained federal government, trained people designed to be able to tell if you're lying, they can't do it to the tune of they're 20 to 24% accurate. Wow. If given a group of people, if they have to tell who's telling the truth, they're 80% right on who's telling the truth. Okay. They're like 22% right with who's lying. Oh, geez. And those are the best of the best, huh. right? Those are the people that are supposed to be able to tell us. So when you look at that, they found that a computer could do a better job than a judge. When the judge oh. sitting in front of them having to make a sentence that if they would have just looked at, just look at the facts and you'll be more accurate than trying to say, well, I need to see inside your soul, right? Yeah. Uh -huh. And so fascinating to me, like what you said, it's gonna be an imperfect system because we are fallible beings and <clears throat> people, we can't tell what people, who they are and what they're really about, even if we know them pretty well, no less if they're strangers. So it's a fascinating topic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, I was going to make a point. I remember you previously had uh, criminal defense attorneys on, on yes. here, and, and you guys had discussions on that area as well. So it's very fascinating what you do. I was going to tell you that. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah it, it's, been, it's been a wonderful journey. And for me, every single one of these episodes, whether, you know, we had just recently a person who owns an ice cream shop. Oh, okay. And it's an incredible, it's my favorite ice cream shop. So I selfishly asked if the owner <laughs> would come on. I met him and he came on. But at the end of the day, I get to meet all these people and get all these perspectives. And that's the goal of the show. Yeah. Like if we can get people to look at things a different way and just maybe look from a little more of a 360 degree perspective, yeah. hopefully it takes down some of the prejudices and biases that we all inherently have uh -huh. and lets us think a minute. Sure. before we take an action. Yeah, so, exactly. But thank you for those words. I of appreciate course. it. <clears throat> I would like to dive into um, another side of this because there's so many different things, right? Like mm -hmm. degrees of this. Mm -hmm. Again, in the Malcolm Gladwell book and then uh, an experience that I had in, in real life with a, with a friend of mine, um, this sex offender thing. 
Sure. Sex offender, if you're labeled that, it changes your life forever. Oh yeah. And there are degrees of sex offenders. Mm -hmm. Everything from two uh, people at a party who had consensual sex, mm -hmm. and then one says after they were too drunk, and when you look at their hip can their blood alcohol levels, their hippocampus was both of them were shut down. Mm -hmm. So now again, the, talking to strangers says, do you really even know what happened? Right. Or how do you put these pieces to get together? That's one side, and then on the other side is someone who maliciously, intentionally, violently uh, takes advantage of someone. Yeah. They're, they're all in the same thing. Now yeah. they might get a different sentence, but at the end of the day, you can't live by a school, you can't get a job, you can't do this and that. How do we, how do we rectify that yeah. or deal with that? Oh, it's, it's actually, it's really <clears throat> wild. I mean, I don't know, did you know about 12 years ago now? Well, more like 10 years ago. Um, if you were caught urinating out in public, you could be put on the sex offender list. No, I did not know that. So it's uh, it's a scary thing. They've since corrected that, right? But for a long period of time, um, the tough on crime model has oversaturated the term sex offender. It's similar to domestic violence, right? Everything, quote unquote, everything you do uh, puts you on the sex offender list. Well, now is the term sex offender so horrible in the sense of I was caught peeing outside a bar versus I intentionally maliciously did this to an individual, yes. right? You're now placed in that same category. And so I think that's what, that goes back to what you had said earlier in terms of are there uh, more safeguards, things like that in the system. Again, I think it's, if you look at how our laws get passed, they're politicians, right? They're uh, running for elections. Um, if you are labeled soft on sex offenders, right, that's probably not gonna get you elected. And so it took a lot of work to get that category of individuals saying, uh, wait, you have to register, you can't be around to school, what did you do? You couldn't have just been caught peeing outside of a bar. Right. Oh no, that's what I did, Yes. right? Um, and so it took a lot of work to get that out. And that's, that's what I see also happening with the label domestic violence, right? Domestic violence, doesn't uh, very well, I wouldn't say very rarely, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean quote unquote violence, right? Mm. If you call your significant other names, if you break a dish out of anger, right? That makes you a domestic violence, uh, guilty of domestic violence. So it becomes an oversaturation of the term and really in my opinion, the real victims of that scenario then are the ones who are actually victims of domestic violence, right? And now they're grouped in as, okay, well, maybe people start thinking that my, me being a victim of this horrendous act wasn't as bad because they've heard of other individuals who broke a dish and now they're a domestic violence offender, right? Um, Sorry, I went on tangent there. <laughs> no, no, no. We were talking about the, just the variation of degrees of yes. these, these kinds of offenses and how it can change someone's life. And in that sense, I'm so grateful for what you do mm -hmm. because if, if I <clears throat> urinated in public back in the day mm -hmm. and I just had to pee yeah. and I was four miles from anywhere I could go and so I'm just trying to you know go whatever and then all of a sudden... I'm in trouble. I would want someone like you on my side because how could I explain that in a right. way where I don't get the, the maximum punishment right. or at least that label that travels with me the rest of my life. So what that part of your job, I, I mean, I, I would see the fulfillment and the reward and the, the, the true blessing that you yeah. are to those people. And I can't imagine that you don't see that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It also goes back to what originally what you had been asking me in terms of, okay, take the worst of the worst, and how do you answer the question of how do you, uh, a variation of how do you do what you do, Yeah, right? Um, if you are really in the trenches and you really see what cases get pushed through, right? Um, the vast majority kind of leaves you scratching your head and thinking, we're going to charge him with this, or you're going to ask for this many years for this type of punishment uh, as an appropriate punishment 
take for example, um, it used to be, they've recently actually changed laws on this, that if you walked away from a halfway house, okay, which no one's gonna sit here and say is acceptable, right? But if you place an addict in a halfway house, oftentimes, <laughs> something- Recipe for disaster. Exactly, yeah. right? And it used to be a scenario where they'd be looking at mandatory 48 to 64 years in prison, right? Depending. Wow. And so if it's a situation where you're talking to that individual and they said they knew I had an addiction problem and they put me in a halfway house, I shouldn't have walked away. I'm willing to accept my punishment for that, right? But you want me to take 48 or 64 years for that? So a lot of my time as a public defender was talking to the DA trying to negotiate and saying this is completely completely absurd in terms of we're not going to just this is a human being we're not going to put them in, in prison for the rest of their lives and just throw away the key right um, or it's addiction based crimes right um, he's caught with possession and you want to charge him with how much it used to be unfortunately they've also changed that rule uh, that that law recently and these are all very recent changes um, if you have um, uh, let's say a, a, a rock in your pocket, right? A uh, um, crack. You could, depending on your priors, be facing 64 years, right? 64 years. And so uh, when a lot of people, and because you have to understand, uh, it's all politics, right? The politicians, the district attorney position is an elected position. Mm -hmm. And they're not going to be promoting, hey, look, we're uh, putting this addict in prison for 64 years or we're, we're, we're something along those lines, right? That's not, that's not what their narrative is. It's more of let's talk about this heinous crime that we're doing and let's talk about the stats of uh, our prosecution, right? Um, and so, yeah, a lot of, my t a lot of the work is uh, trying to convince the DA what is a more equitable uh, sentence and if they're not willing to do that, We'll put them to their evidence. Right. And so mm -hmm. is is like any negotiation, do these sentences start out higher knowing there's going to be a negotiation to try to get to the middle for some reason? Like when you're buying a house, right? Mm -hmm. This person wants to sell it for this. This person wants to buy it for that. They're like, well, we're probably going to have to negotiate anyway, so I'm going to give it a little higher. I can't lose if I get it, mm -hmm. but I really want this as my bottom line number. Does that happen in, in sentencing too? Very much so. Yes, um, and so a lot of the negotiations, and what I'm talking about right now is really the trenches, right? Uh, the public defender work. Those yes. guys, um, again, they, the, the volume of cases that they deal with and just the indigent community being more targeted, right? Mm -hmm. They're really dealing with what we're calling the habitual laws, mm -hmm. those types of things. Um, yeah, and, and even in my private cases now, Right, we'll take a seemingly innocuous case. Very, um, it actually happened to me recently, right? Where I have this client that I'm saying, there's no way we're taking a deal. We're going to trial. Like you were profiled, this isn't right. Um, let's go ahead and set for trial. A common practice I saw as a public defender, and that I still saw, uh, still see to this day, the second we pled her not guilty and set her case for trial five more charges get filed. What? Yeah. Like, hey, you sure you want to do this? Mm -hmm. We're going to make it hard on you. Is that That's the strategy? Exactly right. That's exactly right. And what changed between, um, what changed, right? Yeah. Is that I told this DA, I told this prosecutor, I told this judge, we're going to be exercising her constitutional right. Okay, well, if you do that, we will punish her by adding all these additional charges. And is that equitable? Right. Yeah. That doesn't seem, seem right at all. And right. well, I'm, again, I'm glad you're standing in the gap for these people. And there's another group that you really, really work hard for. And that is professionals that are being accused. So instead of a, a crime, you know, we'll call it a, a crime against society in one way. Mm -hmm. Now we're talking about someone who's being charged, whether it's a, a teacher, a doctor, or maybe even another lawyer or some other professionals with some sort of misconduct. Sure. That's a, that's another part of of what you do, right? Tell, oh, tell us more about that. Yeah, so uh, that's a interesting part of my practice as well. And it's actually, 
uh, I enjoy that just as much. Uh, it's less litigation, which uh, means, you know, I'm not really in a courtroom, but it's also very fulfilling. So going to chiropractor school, going to law school, going to uh, dentistry school, right? It's just putting in all the work into your education and uh, suddenly getting a complaint filed against you and, and the state coming in saying, you're at risk of losing your license because of this, because of this complaint. Um, it doesn't even, the, the person making the complaint doesn't even need to identify themselves. Now, I understand the policy, right? It's, it's actually fairly easy to make a complaint against a professional. And I understand that they don't want to make it hard for the people that are actually aggrieved. Right. Right. Yep. Um, but then that places a heavy, heavy burden, a heavy, heavy toll on the uh, person holding the license to defend their actions. And so is there is there a burden of proof that has to come from the complainant yeah. compared to the defendant? Yeah. Is there, is there equal burden of proof to show who's right, who's wrong here? Right. So that's a good question as well. So typically what we'll see is um, the Department of Regulatory Agencies, DORA. Uh, covers a lot of licensure um, um, professions, right? And so if you make a complaint against a doctor, a dentist, or a teacher through DORA, um, they will then file a letter or send a letter to the professional and saying, hey, uh, we've received this letter, or excuse me, we've received this complaint. We don't know. We're not saying that uh, there's any merit to it, but we want to give you an opportunity to respond. And so it's based off of that response that they then look and compare it with their rules that govern, okay, is this an actual indiscretion? Is this an ethical violation Those along those lines? A couple things can happen from that stage. Uh, Dora can then say, okay, well, uh, based on your response, based on what we see here, there's no further action needed. We'll go ahead and dismiss it. Or, you know, we need additional investigation. So this is now moving on to the next stage. Mm. And so interesting from a strategy perspective. So let's say one of these professionals gets this letter and they think, man, I, I didn't do anything. So I'm just going to respond, especially if they're ticked off about it. Mm -hmm. I can't believe this person would say this. And so they scribble out this thing and it's full of emotion and, yeah. and they, they send it in. That's one thing. Yeah. The other thing is they say, man, I'm not even going to mess with this. I don't want this to get to a stage two. I don't, or, or even if whatever was accused of, they did. Yeah. Then, you know, I would imagine that they would go this route, but getting an attorney involved right away. And so if an attorney gets involved to write a measured, calculated, thoughtful, thorough response compared to their response at stage one, does the regulatory agency look at that like, yeah, that's standard practice or they go like, what's he trying to hide? Why does he have an attorney yeah. versus, oh yeah, he or she are, you know, they're coming at it on themselves. Like what's the, what's the positioning of sure. those guys? If you know, that's, that's a good question. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, I've seen some doozies with uh, the first example that you gave <laughs> is like the emotional response. And, uh, you know, usually then in that scenario, well, the ones that I see, right. Then Dora is saying, okay, well, this does need further action. And then they come and get an attorney and you see the original letter and you're like, Ooh, okay. <laughs> well, we got an uphill bell now, right? Yes. Um, no, I don't think in any scenario where you're obtaining a, a lawyer, it ever makes you look guilty or it makes it uh, more credible or anything. And that includes criminal law as well, mm -hmm. right? People often think, okay, if I hire a lawyer because I'm accused uh, either by a licensing agency or the police, it's going to make me look guilty. That's not true at all. Right. Uh, it's you are hiring a professional to advise you of the steps and advise you of the proper way to go through things. Right. Yes. And so, um, look, could there be some um, intake person that says, oh, well, he got a lawyer and um, that changes my perception? It doesn't matter. Right. At that stage. Yep. yep right. Matter. Could there be a police officer that says, oh, if you get a lawyer, only guilty people get lawyers. Right. Well, why are they saying that? Right. It's because they don't want the lawyer to be involved. So it's really one of those scenarios where if our rights truly mean anything at all, then what difference does it make if you hire an expert in your rights? I agree with that a thousand percent. And I know you know, been in chiropractic now for over 30 years and, and being part of compliance audits and going through all this kind of stuff. There is, um, 
there's so many moving parts for a professional and so many ways that even in the best intended circumstances, something can go wrong. And typically what we've seen in our profession is when complaints get filed to the board, it's for a couple of reasons. Um, and a couple of them are, are decent reasons. If the, if the doctor or the professional does uh, something inappropriate with their client patient, absolutely. That's one big one. Another big one is if they don't get the results hmm. that the person wanted. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you know what another big one is? If they feel like they paid too much for the bill. Money. 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 Yep. And so when people get upset, then they'll put complaints in. And so they're, just like we talked about in the other segments, there's there's a scale, a spectrum of of issues, but yet they're all considered a complaint. Yeah. And so, to man, I mean, people, professionals need help too because, you know, Absolutely. we slash they are not trained to go through this process, to know the laws, to understand and navigate these these waters like someone like yourself. What is the what is the feedback you get after you've worked with someone in a professional setting and you you take them through that process? I know in, in your public defender assistant and internship, that person was just so grateful. Do you find that same thing when you work with professionals as far as helping them walk through? Oh, sure. I mean, look, for different professionals, right? Well, I'll tell them is look, Look, you deal with the surgeries, right? You deal with whatever. You deal with your profession, uh, teaching kids, that type of thing. Let me deal with the law, right? You're good at this. I'm good at this. Um, and so there's no reason for you to... What I like to tell my clients is now that I'm on board, let me handle the stress, right? It, and, and I don't mean that as, okay, they're completely unburdened now, right? Yes. But my job is to help explain things to them and explain sort of the strategy and the process. And usually what I find is, you know, going back to what G.I. Joe days, uh, knowledge is power, right? Yes. The more you know. And so the more it's explained to them, the more they understand the process. Usually I find, okay, uh, they think, I understand now it's less stressful, it's less uncertain, um, and we'll trust you in terms of how to handle. That's cool. I'll, I'll tell you, it, I think from a professional's perspective, knowing that, it, it's like when I would tell patients, listen, do what I ask you to do. You do your part, and I'll do my part. Yeah. In the office, we're going to do this treatment, this rehab, this, 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 that. Outside the office, please do your exercise, get enough rest, don't eat pro-inflammatory foods. You do your part and I'll do mine. Yeah. And it just, it lifts that burden, like you said. So what you're talking about in a situation where, like, and I mean, speaking for myself, part of our identity of who we are is after putting in all that work, having some sort of a, a designation, whether that's, you know, as a doctor, teacher, attorney, whatever, pilot, whatever the professional thing is, that's part of who you are. and. and when something comes up that challenges that, especially if it's something that the professional feels is not warranted, man, that creates a lot of stress. So to have someone like you that can that can thoughtfully, and I mean, just from our time today, I think everyone can see that you're just calm, you're passionate, you're concerned, you have you know you have all of these tools that would help someone going through a situation like that feel a little bit more at ease. I mean, it never is out of their minds. Sure. But at least they know that they've got an advocate and someone who's going to do what needs to be done so that they can continue to operate through their quote unquote normal life until the resolution comes. I'm sure, I don't know if that's the biggest thing you get from what you do, but I'm sure that's got to be huge for you. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's nice because one of the thought process is, look, if I'm ever accused of a crime, right? I'm likely not going to defend myself. Mm. There's there's a saying in the law that I'm sure everyone knows is uh, any uh, person that, ha that represents himself has a fool for a lawyer. <laughs> I've right. heard that. It's so good. <laughs> um, you're just not able to separate your, the, uh, the self-interest, the emotions that go into it, and the emotions that cloud the decision-making if you're representing yourself. Right. And so uh, for me, I add that layer of or not just me, but any lawyer. Right. As that layer of detachment. Right. Of, OK, I hear the frustrations and anger that you're going through and how unfair things are. Let's talk about next steps and let's talk about strategy. Right. And some people and most people just need that, that, OK, thank you for listening to me. Thank you for letting me vent. 
um, let's talk about strategy now. Mm, so good. Yeah. Andrew, you have been such a wealth of knowledge and we took on a couple of challenging issues and I'm sure people listening or watching are, are either in agreement or they're throwing their hands up or who knows, <laughs> but that's what conversations are all about, well, right? Sure. And see yeah. another perspective. This was beautiful. I have one more question for yeah, you. of course. And I would like to, to get your answer on this. If you've been given or learned one piece of advice along the way that you use now as a pillar of who you are, how you do life, and, and what makes foundationally you, you, would you be willing to share that with our audience? Oh, sure. Um, thinking back, I mean, talking about like core principles, um, I've always thought that, uh, and I'm, I'm trying to think of dating back to where this actually came from. Um, I, I spoke a little bit about my parents and sort of my upbringing. We've always been taught um, community first, right? Um, it's bigger, it's bigger than yourself. You live in the community. You want a good community. You want to improve the community, right? Um, and you want to take care of that community. And so for me, surrounding myself with people that care about something bigger than themselves has always inspired me to be a better person and to work harder because there's something that I'm working towards that's better than just me. Mm, that's right. so good. So good. Now, I'll tell you, people are going to want to learn more about you. Uh, people may need your help. Reach out. You, I mean, Andrew, you and, and the work that you're doing and all the folks over at Rep Cornfield and what they're doing, it's important work. It's vital work. How can they reach you if they want to learn more about becoming a criminal attorney or criminal defense attorney or if they want to learn more or they need your help? How would they reach out and, and connect? Oh, sure. Um, and well, one thing with that in terms of wanting to learn about being a criminal defense attorney and that, that's, that's another philosophy that I carry is it's actually something that is uh, sort of a um, pay it forward type thing. Ever since I was little, our, our community is actually fairly small, right? Um, and there's never really been a scenario or a situation where I haven't been able to pick up a phone and ask a question. Mm. And so it's always been my stance that if anyone has ever wanted to reach out and have coffee and just uh, law students, uh, people looking for jobs, people looking for career advice, um, people have always been so kind to me about that that I've uh, make it a personal philosophy not to say no. Right, so I'd encourage that type of thing. Um, they can reach out to me via email, Andrew, A-N-D-R-E-W, at RKLawPC, like paulcharlie.com. That's beautiful. i tell you what, man, you were a great guest. This has been Appreciate a fun that. show. I hope you had fun. Absolutely. And um, I know that we're gonna be able to spend some more time together in the future. You just really, the energy and the vibe that you give is so cool. And, and just so inviting that uh, you're, you know, you're the kind of person I want in my circle. So I can't thank you enough for appreciate joining it. me today. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks a lot. This was a whole lot of fun. Absolutely. So for those of you watching, listening again, I hope that you'll listen to this and listen with an open heart and mind. Ask yourself, how can I learn from this? And then share it with someone. We want to get the word out about people making a difference. And Andrew certainly is making a difference. But don't forget, you too, every day in some small way can make a difference. So now go out and do it.